San Francisco in the early 1980s was a safe haven for young gay men. Thousands of people lined Market Street this morning as the Gay Freedom Day parade and celebration marched from Spear Street to the United Nations Plaza. Their message was this. I'm gay and I'm free and I'm happy. But then people began to notice something. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Robert Bazell now in Atlanta. This is One Bold Idea, a podcast honoring the 150-year history of the University of California. In this episode, we're featuring a research university that helped change the course of one of the worst epidemics in human history. I remember the patient really vividly. I took a photo of him. That's longtime UCSF oncologist Dr. Paul Volberding. He saw that patient on July 1st, 1981. It's easy enough for him to remember the date because it was his first day on the job at San Francisco General Hospital. Very thin, 22-year-old guy estranged from his family, came from the Deep South, ended up in San Francisco, and then came in really wasting away from this cancer, Kaposi sarcoma. Kaposi sarcoma is a rare form of cancer. When it does show up, it usually comes in the form of a tumor on the skin, and it's often painless. But what Volberding observed in 1981 was different. When we saw it in 22-year-olds, we knew it was something new. And what's really going on is the cancer is spreading really throughout the body. You just happen to see it on the skin. It's in really all the tissues. Uh, one of the most common places for it to start was on the tip of the nose. So the first thing a person sees when they look at you is capacies. After that first patient, he started seeing more and more young men with rare cancers. And we began to realize that these things were linked. Later, of course, we realized that it was linked by a single virus. And that single virus was human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. All Volberding and his colleagues knew at that point was that it was an infectious disease. And nobody was sure how it passed from person to person. And that led to a lot of fear, in the public and in the medical community. At the end of 1982, one of the internal medicine residents uh, was pregnant and, and asked whether it was safe for her to be sleeping in the beds that we used as exam tables during the day. To try to figure out what was happening, SF General and UCSF found space for Volberding and his colleague, Dr. Connie Wolfsey, to start a clinic for the growing tide of patients. It became known as Ward 86. This is an old red brick building built in uh, right after the earthquake, I think, in 1906. But the floor was empty. One half of the floor uh, had a big space that was used once a week for a jazzercise class. Um, otherwise, the whole place was empty. We had a staff of only about four people, but we had our offices in one big room. We had cubicles, and the rest of the space was for patient exam rooms, waiting room, and the rest. This is the first AIDS clinic in the world. The opening of Ward 86 in 1983 couldn't have come at a better time. The AIDS epidemic was full-blown. It sounds like the plot of a science fiction horror movie. A weird mutant virus, deadlier than the plague, suddenly appears on Earth. AIDS, 
AIDS, the most frightening initials in America today. Last week, a report in the New England Journal of Medicine said acquired immune deficiency syndrome posed a potential threat to the general population. People with AIDS in the community uh, knew that this was a place where research was being conducted, so it became really the place to come for care. People infected with HIV and AIDS flooded the clinic. But there wasn't even a test for HIV yet. Doctors couldn't identify who had the virus. All they could do was look for symptoms. Volberding and his colleagues tried to figure out how the virus even spread as their patients died at a rapid rate. Patients would often come in with devastated immune systems. These young people, and they were in their 20s and 30s, would be so weak they couldn't lift their hand off the bed, wasting away at almost nothing. Uh, Kaposi's lesions, these purple cancer lesions all over their skin. Patients blind from a type of uh, a viral infection in the eye. People demented uh, because HIV causes dementia. You know, that just demands research. And because Volberding and his team were part of UCSF, they had access to research grants that helped them dive into the most pressing need, finding treatments. The Ward 86 doctors performed one of the world's first clinical trials of an AIDS drug. But the ward was more than research and drugs. It was about compassionate care at a time when a lot of people were afraid to even confront AIDS. Volberding was accustomed to treating cancer patients, and he brought that mindset of specialty care to the clinic. You have to have great nurses. You have to have social workers. You have to have people that know how to draw blood from the smallest possible sources. Um, and so the, the concept of team care that really typified this place, I think, grew out of that. This model was revolutionary for Ward 86's marginalized patients. This was a time when being gay meant being ostracized, and when fear of AIDS led to sick people often suffering alone. All of our early patients were gay men, uh, almost all of them, and so it was necessarily uh, pretty much a gay oriented approach to care, uh, certainly respecting uh, the communities that these patients came from. But it was also a, a care system that was interwoven with the community because we realized that the patients that we were taking care of often didn't have a mother and father and sister and brother. And that type of care still exists today at Ward 86. I was born in 1958. I'll be 60 next month. That's Norman Tanner. Half a lifetime ago, he was an IV drug user. I was fidgety and, and didn't feel good, so I decided to come to San Francisco get a physical, and that's when they saw something. The doctors came back and said, uh, you have full-blown AIDS, you have six months to live, and that was it. Okay, they were not compassion or nothing like that. And so first thing I said, oh, well, you got to die of something, the denial. He found his way to Ward 86 in 1990 and he found a different kind of care. You know the doctors took time with me and other patients, and they took uh, interest in our overall life and health. Like my doctor know everything about me. I'm in recovery, they know about that. You, you know, I'm gay, they know about that, they know about my partner. We have a good relationship. You know, you can drop in and, and see your doctor without appointments. They, they, they treat me like a patient, nah, nah, not a number. And for Tanner, that level of care has kept him alive. 
I never thought I would live to be 60. My, my life is good. It's good. Each and every day it gets better. At its peak, the AIDS epidemic killed 30 people a week in San Francisco. Since Tanner was diagnosed, the disease has gone from a death sentence to a chronic illness. But the work of the ward that pioneered AIDS care is far from over. Paul Volberding now co-directs the UCSF Gladstone Center for AIDS Research. It serves as a central hub for a vast network of HIV research centers across the country. In the last decade, it's helped fund more than 200 studies into how to stop the spread of HIV and how to cure it. Their collaborative research represents the next chapter in the story of institutions stepping up to take on the huge challenge of AIDS. Without that support, Wilberding says, Ward 86 never could have existed in the first place. To be able to respond to this and do research, I think that's what kept a lot of us going. The connection with the university, the clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, and the connections to the gay community were really the central elements in what was a really important thing to do and a really successful model that uh, has been used across the world. Thanks for listening to One Bold Idea. I'm Shuka Kalantari. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can check out our interactive timeline for other stories over the past 150 years at 150.universityofcalifornia.edu. The music you heard in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. This story was reported by Alyssa Jong Perry, mixed by Francesca Fenzi, and produced and edited by Graylin Brashear and Ben Manila at the UC Berkeley Advanced Media Institute in collaboration with the University of California.